What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's a new year, and I have a new podcast here at The Ringer, Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy, Pasha Hagigi. Austin and I go way back and talk so much hoop already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on all of these conversations. Every week, Pasha and I will hit on the biggest stories happening in the league and get Austin's perspective of someone currently hooping in the NBA. Tap into Off Guard every Friday on The Ringer NBA Show feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now from The Ringer, The Ringer NFL Show, it is Nora Princiati. Nora, how are you? I'm doing very well, Brian. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm getting ready for football season. I'm going to get into the Red Sox later on in the pod. Their season is pretty much over. So now I'm turning my attention to the Patriots because at least now there's some optimism. There's some <laughs> optimism, I should say, with this team. I mean, it's early. We're still in training camp. But I got to ask you this, Nora, somebody that's covered the NFL for a while. Have you ever been at a training camp practice where an offensive coordinator came onto the field and he got a standing ovation from the crowd? Because <laughs> that's what happened with Bill O'Brien. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a first. I can't think of another time when that would have happened. That's really funny. Oh, that's just too good. The the Matt Patricia bounce, I think, is similar. Like, the only thing that's comparable is just the Urban Meyer and Jacksonville thing. Um, not offensive coordinator. But I wonder if Doug Peterson got, got a standing O at some point there. Yeah, I was saying this the other day on the pod is, like, I can't remember a time if, say, this goes really well for the Patriots and they have a really good season where... Bill Belichick will not get the credit because for so many years, the offense, Brady always got the credit. It wasn't really Josh or Charlie Weiss. It was Brady got the credit, even when Bill O'Brien was here, right? The the year with the double tight ends. And then when you look at the defense, it was always Bill got the credit, right? Not Romeo Cornell, not Flores, not Matt Patricia, who of course is then the offensive coordinator, but Bill always got the credit for the defense. Tom always got the credit for the offense. Like if there's a turnaround this year, I feel like Bill O'Brien is going to get more credit than... A, the quarterback, Mac Jones, and B, the head coach, Bill Belichick, which I don't think that's ever happened during this tenure when, as since Belichick's taken over. That would be, a, it would be a real outlier as far as, as general football narratives go. I don't, I don't know that I agree with you though, or it's a possibility, okay. but I would be really curious to see if it panned out that way, just because I do think there'll be some piece of the conversation, if that's what happens, that's. How much is it that Bill O'Brien is actually good relative to just last year was such a raging dumpster fire? 
that it can't help but look half decent. And then if the defense is still the better of the the two major units, which I think it should be, even if the offense takes major steps forward relative to last year, I still think Bill comes out okay, especially just getting like the Bill Belichick reputational bump, which despite the the jabs it's taken over the last few years is probably still significant. So we'll see. But I would yeah. be surprised if that happened. He could get the credit and the blame where it's like, well, see, if you just had a competent guy, somebody that was decent at the job, you would have been fine last year. But also Bill got the team back to the playoffs or something along those lines where he gets the credit. So I did want to get into O'Brien for this because I've mentioned this before in the pod, but if you look at him in his tenure, so with Welker in 2011, Welker was second in targets in 14 when he comes back to the NFL with Houston, Andre Johnson was fifth. In 15, Hopkins was third. 16, Hopkins was seventh. 17, Hopkins was first. 18, Hopkins was fifth. And 19, he was fifth. And then, of course, he barely lasted in 2020. So, obviously, Welker sort of redefined that slot position where they were just feeding him constantly. And Andre Johnson is a Hall of Fame-level receiver. And DeAndre Hopkins played it at a Hall of Fame level as well. So, I do wonder, like, is there going to be a situation here where you look at a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster, who's not your prototypical number one and has been better off as a number two receiver? Do you see a way that, do you think he'll be like, could he possibly be in the top 20 in targets this season? Last year, I think it was, what, 37th? He had 101 in 16 games. Like, Bill O'Brien in his past has really liked to feature like his main players. Or does he have to adapt to do it differently where it's more by the committee because he doesn't have that star level receiver since DeAndre Hopkins is in Tennessee. Yeah, I was going to say while you're you're setting that up, like, (laughs) are you about to suggest to me that Juju Smith-Schuster is going to be like top five in the NFL in receptions? Um, (laughs) It's probably not going to be so dramatic like that, right? Like Juju's a good player, but there's a talent disparity there between the guys that you just listed off. But if what's been happening at training camp so far is, is, any guide, it indicates that he's going to be pretty heavily featured because he's been one of the players that has been most frequently targeted by Mac Jones, particularly in the, in the heavier practices. It seems like I was only down there for two days um, and have tried to keep up with some of the practice reports in the sessions, at least the padded ones that I missed, but he was certainly a feature. Um, The other thing that you notice about the Bill O'Brien offense, um, and it's a little hard to talk about because, you know, there's all sorts of rules about you're not supposed to describe plays that you see and blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. But I think it's okay for me to say that you can sniff out a little bit of the Alabama lineage in some of the stuff that mm. they've been doing. And, you know, I will just say generally, like, that would be a little bit of RPO emphasis, like some of that optionality um, being a part of the game. Uh, being a part of the offense would dovetail with times that Bill O'Brien has been a successful coordinator. And also when Mac Jones has been a successful quarterback. Um, so I, I do think that they are going to spread the ball around, but if, if you wanted to pick someone to be featured, like Juju is seeming like not necessarily the guy, but certainly one of the guys. So I would expect that he gets a fairly significant target share. Yeah. And one of the other things is like Adrian Phillips the other day was saying how Bill O'Brien, you never see like the same thing twice, which is nice to hear because last year I was like the Patriots had no idea what they were doing offensively. And he was talking about all the different 
personnel groups that Bill O'Brien liked to use. And he even said that he's definitely watching film because you can tell like one day the defense <laughs> gets him, the next day he comes back. So he's watching film on the Patriots defense to get ready for practice, which I think, okay, that's that's good at least. I mean, I would like him to focus on other teams, but it's good that he's winning these battles with the Patriots defense at times during training camp. But how about these two rookies? Because Kayshawn Booty obviously had like a high reputation coming out of high school. He had that huge game where he set the SEC record for receiving yards. And then there's Demario Douglas, who his numbers through the roof at the combine, 97th percentile in the broad jump. He was 76th percentile in the 40. I mean, just really explosive guy. And Booty had the ankle injury at the collegiate level. And if you look at Douglas, he kind of came out of nowhere. And he's sort of been one of these guys that has had a really good training camp so far to the point where today I saw he had a team high four catches. And I know it's just training camp, but do you think at least one of these two guys has like a role on the team this season? I mean, Douglas is just like such a Patriots guy, right? He's like yeah. little joystick dude. He's quote unquote catching everything as they love to say. He's kind of that like slot dude who can also help a lot on special teams. I mean, for him, the name of the game is is to make the roster, right? But it seems like he has a real inside track based on the production so far through camp. And then also that that special teams element is, I think, huge. Um, so, you know, I, I'm the first to say that preseason can be a tough thing to glean meaningful developments from. But if I were a Patriots fan and I were, were tuning into their preseason games, like he is the one that I would be super curious about just because there's always one of those guys who really pops. And usually, especially if he's someone who can offer multiple different roles to the team, which which Douglas certainly can because of special teams, he winds up there. So I, I would be really curious. Yeah, and I would say this, like with the history of Bill Belichick, odds are that Demario Douglas or Kayshawn Booty end up having a better career than Tyquan Thornton because it's usually these guys that are either undrafted or late round draft picks that work at the receiver position <laughs> for Bill rather than the guys that end up in the first or the second round. All right, so out of the tight ends, Gusecki's had... Multiple 700-yard seasons. We haven't seen that from Henry, but Henry did have nine touchdowns in 2021. Gusecki's career high is six. And I look at that chemistry. Like, Mack and Hunter Henry had a really good thing going, I felt like, two years ago. And then part of everything that transpired with Matt Patricia, he wasn't as involved. The touchdowns went from nine to two. And you look at a guy like Gusecki, he was kind of out of favor in Mike McDaniel's offense there in Miami when they bring in Tyreek Hill. And all that. So if you had to predict, which one of these guys do you think has the bigger season, Gusecki or Hunter Henry? I think Hunter Henry. I, I think they'll both be be a meaningful part of the offense. But Hunter Henry and Mac look like they've got a really good thing going. And particularly in the red zone, I think he's going to play an important role for them. One of my I think my favorite of the man last year was really brutal nuggets that has popped up is um, the, well, we couldn't audible and Matt can audible now. And it's because they were <laughs> installing so much new stuff that no one had ever repped last training camp that it wasn't like, oh, we don't trust him to audible. It was just, you need to run the plays that we're calling because we've never run them before in our entire lives. So like you got to <laughs> get up there and just do what we're calling. Whereas now, because it's a little bit more rational, um, I, I think he has that freedom, which is a, you know, that's a sign of empowerment from the coaches, but I think it's a little bit more like we're not desperate to just run this wide zone play because we've 
got to figure out how to do it. It's a little bit more about like developing chemistry and really perfecting things. Um, and one example uh, of I'm forgetting which one it was, but one of the practices that I was at, um, it, you could tell that there was a play where Matt got up to the line, looked at what the defense was showing, made an adjustment and ended up. Um, and I think it was they were running some red zone stuff and he ended up um, completing a really nice pass to Hunter Henry. And you just get a feel that that's a that's a developing connection that I think they have pretty high hopes for. And I mean, if I were Hunter Henry, I would I would certainly be wanting this to be a season to kind of leave a mark because it's just been, you know, underwhelming. Um, but I think he'll have a heavy red zone role in particular. Where do you think Bill is at with Mac? Because two years ago, he was so high on him and he came into last training camp basically applauding him for being so much better. And then, of course, we saw the year it didn't go well for Mac. It didn't go well for the offense in general. A lot of that had to do with Matt Patricia. Then he spent the offseason where he wouldn't definitively say Mac was the guy. Even if you go back to Bill O'Brien's press conference earlier this week, he didn't just say like, hey, Mac Jones is the guy, even though it appears that or we know that Mac Jones is the guy. It's just a fascinating situation because you think about it after the year, they're going to have to decide, hey, are we picking up the fifth year option? Are we extending him? Are we in the market for a quarterback again? Like, what of those scenarios do you think is the most likely? Obviously, it depends a lot on what happens this season. But do you think Mac looks like a better version of what we saw in his rookie season? Or do you think that we're going to come away from this season being like, ah, I'm not so sure if Mac Jones is the quarterback for this team going forward? Yeah, I think um, I so I think Mac will look like a better and developing version of what he looked like in his rookie season, which I think will come off as a, as a very positive thing. Um, the one concern, cause I, the offense, um, based on what I saw down there and what I've read, the offense seems to be doing pretty well so far with the, I would say one significant concern being the health of the offensive line. And that's absolutely something that is just like that can derail anyone's season. Right. So hopefully that stays relatively stable and as long as it does, I think Bill O'Brien will have a really smart plan for him. I think they have more viable options at the skill positions than they've had in, in some recent years. And none of the just absolutely banging your head against the wall. Like they're going to run some play action, right? Like it's, it's yeah. not rocket science. Um, if you can pick up on the <laughs> irony of that. So I think he will make significant strides. I I would imagine the fifth year option is what they do. He's the starter. Like Bill O'Brien and Bill Belichick are just doing the normal thing of, oh, well, everybody has to compete here, blah, 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 blah. And that's all mind games. And it's always mind games when they name a starter clearly. And it's always mind games when they don't. Mac Jones is getting all of the starters reps. Like if you beamed an alien down from Mars, he would be like, yeah, Mac Jones is the starting quarterback of the New England Patriots. So that to me says that there is no haziness about him being the guy. Um, I do think at some point, and they will in some ways be lucky to get to this point because it will mean that they have checked all of the boxes of the stuff that went so horribly wrong last year was a last year problem. I think once that happens, they will get to a point where they have to answer to themselves. We are in this AFC with, Patrick Mahomes and Joe Burrow and Josh Allen and, you know, <laughs> two in the Dolphins offense. And, oh, now Aaron Rodgers says he's going to be with the Jets for 900 years, apparently. Is this enough? 
And do we have enough to compete in this just absolutely stacked division and even, and sorry, conference and even division of quarterbacks? That's probably a Mac Jones question in, in a lot of ways, but it's not one that they have to answer right now. Yeah, it's a good point because all these other quarterbacks are appear to be super talented and Max sort of you wonder what the ceiling is. But to your point, just about Mac looking like a better version of what we saw in 2021, the play action, I mean, he went from 26% of his dropbacks down to 16%, which is just unbelievable. And then the other thing you mentioned with Bill O'Brien earlier, like the RPO game, that's something that we know going back to the collegiate level, Mac was the most efficient passer out of RPOs in his final season at Alabama. So hopefully they can sprinkle that in as well. So I'm excited to see what they get out of Mac. I did want to get to Jack Jones because... It's been sort of a bizarre camp, which I guess we could have expected. So he left practice the other day after he was upset about something. And then he was asked about um, his legal situation. He said, I mean, I can't answer that question. That's a question for my lawyer. He's due back in court pretty soon here on the 18th. And last year, numbers are really good, right? Like the passer rating against was third among rookies. He had a great season. And you would figure like pairing him with Christian Gonzalez, you feel optimistic about the future. But obviously... This is now the second issue he's had with the Patriots going back to last year where he wasn't like showing up to rehab sessions or whatever it is. But the fact that he's out there, Nora, it sort of feels like the Patriots are expecting him to play, right? Like, do you think like the most likely scenario is that they wait for the legal process to play out, not just the Patriots, but the league as well? And he's actually suited up for this team in week one. So week one is just hard, hard to say because you've got to figure there will be some kind of suspension and when mm. that happens is is wholly determined i think by when the legal process is complete um i, I think he's got that he's got to appear as you said in in mid late august so i don't know how quickly that gets wrapped up if that gets wrapped up quickly and then the league acts quickly maybe that puts week 1 in jeopardy, I think it's reasonable to assume that at some point there's going to be an availability question this season. Uh, more generally, I think the Patriots have decided that, you know, I, I don't mean that they're OK with this as in. They support him trying to bring guns through the airport or whatever, right. but I think that they have decided that the juice is worth the squeeze on this. Um, I think if he were a less talented player and this is how all football teams act. If he were a significantly less talented player, he would probably not be on the team because they don't want to deal with the issue itself, the headaches that it's caused, the fact that it is going to influence his availability, potentially because of a suspension. But also, I think that hearing date lines up with a preseason game. I mean, not that you would be expecting a player like him to play a ton in the preseason, but it's it's look, they want all their guys with them as much as possible. Um he walked out of practice under weird circumstances the other day, already had a, had a team suspension last year, right, at the end of the year. So uh, this is a player who's caused them some headaches in a number of ways, but who's really, really good. And I think if they decided that this was going to be the last straw, they would have done it right when the, the news came out. Um, Because, and I, you know, I don't mean to like, a pine here. But if you've guns in your suitcase at the airport, like something's not right. Whether whether you put him there or not, you've got a player who's putting himself in situations that 
are going to lead to bad outcomes one way or another. But so I think they knew as much as they would have needed to know to make a decision at that point if they were going to do it. So I think now they're going to they're going to sort of be mum about it and see it through and accept whatever the league comes up with, accept whatever the legal process comes up with. And like, that's fine. But I, I just don't think that from the Patriots standpoint, there are a lot of remaining sliding doors here. I think they've basically made their choice. Right. I, I agree with that because they probably look at it as, okay, our avenue to get back to the postseason is to have a top five defense. If we're going to have a top five defense, part of that is going to include Jack Jones. So let's let this ride out and see what happens. And ultimately, we'll see if he's on the field or not. But I do assume, well, I shouldn't assume this, but I would predict that there's going to be another problem with Jack Jones down the road because well, it just seems like. I, you're right to bring that up, right? Because I'm talking about what the team is deciding within the context of this incident. It does seem like there is always something and yes if this is if this is sort of the the wake-up call that leads him to get his act together then it seems like the team is is ready to accept that and and you know welcome him with open arms under the circumstances that have already taken place i do think he's probably on fairly thin ice um, it was interesting to read that they were interested in, in bringing Stefan Gilmore back over the off season. Now, obviously the, the timing does not work in a way where that is something that they would have wanted to do as a response to this. That's not what I'm saying at all. And the, the timeline does not suggest that, but it, because that defensive back core is pretty young and promising Jack Jones being, being primary among those guys. It was just interesting to read that they were still sort of like, ah, we could use a big piece here. Um, and if if I if there was some question about what this guy's future was involved in that, it wouldn't shock me. But they're also very different players that, that could have been just like we want someone who has a little bit more size. I don't know. But it it piqued my interest. Yeah, no doubt about that. And Matthew Judon just got his contract. It's not an extension. He just got some figures moved around. He got a nice little payday. And you look at the other guys here. So great for Judon, and I think he's going to be good in these final two years. He's had his best two seasons, and he's not like, it doesn't look like he's, it was 29 and 30, so he's 31 and 32 in these next two years. I think it's good to keep him around. He's been really their best defensive player over the past two years, and I would expect that to be at least close to the case this season, depending on how some of these other guys develop. But in terms of contracts, are you surprised that they haven't gone to, and look, maybe they're trying to negotiate these deals, but Duggar, even Bill Belichick alluded to the fact that, hey, those guys make a lot of money. Uche had sort of, we've been waiting for this from Uche for a couple of years, where he finally had the breakout season. Do you think before now, in the start of the season, they'll try to get a deal done, or they'll get one done with one of these two guys? I sort of doubt it just because we haven't heard really much at all to that extent, but it would make it would make some sense for them to do that. Although I think typically they sometimes let let those situations play out a little bit more than other teams do. Like there's the Bengals model, right, where they try to get their guys done really really early in the contract cycles and a lot of that has to do with owners ability to to put cash in escrow and, and all of that stuff, which is makes my eyes glaze over, but, and the Patriots are not in that situation. They do not typically pursue those types of deals. 
which is interesting because often those, you know, often getting something done early ends up being team friendly in the long run, but it does force you to make a decision. And like Bill's vibe is always just, he just wants to see it play out. He just wants to see what happens. Um, so I, I would say no, but it wouldn't be shocking if, if either one of those happened. Yeah, I think it would be more likely that it's Duggar just because it seems like he's kind of taken on this leadership role. And I wonder if with Uche, they want to see him, hey, can you prove it for one more year? And he's going to get, you would think, more attention this year because obviously last year, the offense is paying attention more to Matthew Judon than Uche. And Uche, give him credit. I mean, the guy had a tremendous season, but I'll be interested to see what he looks like again this season because I thought he was tremendous last year. All right, so just looking at this division, who do you think is the biggest threat to the Bills? Do you think it's the Dolphins or the Jets? I assume you don't think it's the Patriots. Uh, I go, I really, so I do think it's the Jets, but I really, really go back and forth with Miami. I think that one's really tough. I think Steven and I put them really, really close together when we were doing the rankings. Um, It just in that sense, it comes down to the quarterback for me. I have too many questions about Tua's health, but there is a way that that Miami offense clicks. And all of a sudden, we're not really just talking about, like, are they threatening the Bills? It's are Is that team a, a Super Bowl contender with the offense they have if he's healthy for the entire year? And then also with um, getting Vic Fangio in there to, to be the defensive coordinator, I think is going to be significant. And they've got a lot of talent. Um I just thought their their defensive scheme last year was so chaotic, so, so blitz heavy. There's going to be some order and some sense making there on the back end that I think all of a sudden we're going to go even, you know, despite the fact that Jalen Ramsey's hurt now, we're going to go, oh, there's quite a few good players here. Um, So I, I think they'll be a really, really good team, too. I think the division is pretty stacked. And that gets back to the just like what happens if the Patriots take a bunch of steps forward and are still the fourth team in the division. Like how, how does Robert Kraft feel about that? How does the fan base feel about that? It's an interesting thing to watch play out. Cause it's just a weird vibe. Um, but final answer, Aaron Rodgers and the New York jets. Yeah. It's a good point on the Patriots too, because this could be a situation where, Hey, the offense looks a lot better. The defense looks similar or maybe a little bit better last year. And the record is similar to last year's or like maybe a game better. And they still miss out on the playoffs. It's just unfortunately for so many years with this Patriots team with Brady, we had like a little sprinkle of the Jets with the Rex Ryan era. But other than that, there wasn't really a lot of competition for the Patriots. And now all of a sudden, as the Patriots are trying to build back up, now you have this division more stacked than really any other division in the NFL. So, hey, Nora, before I let you go, this Bills thing, there's been a lot of drama with them over the past, I'd say, year and a half where it felt like, okay, people were debating whether they were as good as the 2007 Patriots. Like, are they actually going to go undefeated? They were like everybody's pick last year. And then it really feels like, and they did it on the field, the Bengals have sort of passed them. I know Burrow's dealing with this injury, but it really feels like you have the Chiefs and the Bengals at the top, and then there's still the Bills. And then there's this next group. I mean, you mentioned the Dolphins, the Jets, but also a team like the Ravens, who they added a bunch totally. in the offseason. Odell Beckham Jr., Lamar got paid. So that's a team that certainly could take a step or definitely will take a step forward as long as Lamar's healthy this season. Do you think that the Bills are closer to the Chiefs and the Bengals still, or do you think they're closer to that other group? I think they're closer to the Chiefs and the Bengals. I, I think that's the three. Um, and I think the Chiefs are very obviously one in that group. 
I agree with you that I I do Cincinnati next just because of um the track record in particular against really really good quarterbacks, Mahomes included. But I I think there's an argument there somewhere for the Bills. Um, like if somebody wanted to argue them as as two, I wouldn't think it completely crazy. And I think that that's a pretty tight tight distinction. All right, that is Nora Princiati from The Ringer, The Ringer NFL Show. Nora, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, Brian. FanDuel has some electrifying news. Get ready to play the hottest phone game of the season with NFL legend Rob Gronkowski introducing Gronk Spike Cornhole, the thrilling cornhole game that lets you play a fun twist on cornhole against Gronk himself. In Gronk Spike Cornhole, the goal is simple. Score as many points as you can by strategically sinking your bags knocking Gronk's bags off the board and creating epic combos to dominate the competition. Gronk's Spike Cornhole is available on FaceOff, the FanDuel skill gaming app on iPhone and Android. Compete in all your favorite games against real people for real cash on FanDuel FaceOff. There are a wide variety of games, including the classic favorites like Wheel of Fortune, Atari Breakout Blitz, Boggle, alongside the all-new Gronk's Spike Cornhole. On FanDuel FaceOff, contests are action-packed and last between 2-5 to five minutes so you can play for cash during commercial breaks, waiting in line at the grocery store or over a cup of coffee or whenever works on your schedule. No interruptions, no annoying ads, just pure gaming excitement. Are you ready to compete against Gronk? Run up the score and take home the crown in Gronk Spike Cornhole? Download FanDuel Faceoff now in the Apple App Store or fanduel.com slash faceoff for Android users. Age and location restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See FanDuel.com slash FaceOff terms for terms and conditions. Get in the game today and play Gronk Spike Cornell on FanDuel FaceOff. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Nora Princiati from The Ringer as we get ready for the Patriots season. I can't believe we're getting this close. I know we say it every year at this time, but it is wild that we're almost here. Patriots season just about to get underway and we see some good signs at training camp. We'll see if it carries over into the regular season, but... On the opposite side of things, you have the Red Sox right now, where I felt so optimistic heading into the weekend, even though there were some struggles on the West Coast against San Francisco, against Seattle, I was feeling good. You got the Blue Jays, a team that you were 7-0 and against prior to the weekend, and you were just two games behind them for the final wild card spot. And then I don't think you can have a worse weekend if you're the Red Sox, because not only are you swept, so now you're back five games from that wild card spot, and teams have now jumped you. You're now back in last place in the division behind the New York Yankees. But now you're in a position where you have all sorts of drama with the team, and that's mainly Alex Verdugo. From my perspective, that's the biggest story out of the weekend for the Red Sox, because that, to me, is a flat-out embarrassment. And in particular, on Verdugo. I'm not talking about for the organization. I'm talking about specifically for the player. It's a flat-out embarrassment, and it's unacceptable. So just going through some of this here. So Alex Verdugo, two hours before the game on Saturday, he's pulled from the lineup. Adam Duvall has put it into the lineup. So you're like, what the fuck's going on? Is he hurt? Alex Cora says before the game, this is not an injury thing. This is not a health thing. This is a manager's decision. He, that's what he continued to call it, a manager's decision. He made it clear it wasn't health. And you look after the game, or during the game, actually, Ann Brown from MLB.com had reported that he was two hours late, as we alluded to, right? And that's why he was pulled from the lineup. You're supposed to be there four hours prior to the game. Verdugo was there two hours prior from the game. And I've heard this isn't the first time this happened with Alex Verdugo, but nonetheless, I have never seen Alex Cora 
so mad at a post-game press conference where he said after the game, I decided not to play him. I think today we took a step back as a team. We have to make sure everybody's available every single day here for us to get where we're going to go. And that wasn't the case. And as a manager, I've got to take care of this. I decided he wasn't going to play. Cora then said, I'm very disappointed. This is probably one of my worst days here in this organization. Okay, so both Cora and Verdugo said that this had nothing to do with what transpired on Friday night. Okay, let's go back to Friday night. So Friday night, bottom of the eighth inning, remember in that game on Friday, Cora pinch hit Rob Ref Snyder for Alex Verdugo with a lefty on the mound. Okay, which by the way, I talked about this prior to the trading deadline. I've been telling you about this for weeks that this is going to be a problem. Okay, I told you this. This is going to be a problem with Alex Verdugo. If Alex Verdugo isn't in the lineup or something's happening when there's a lefty on the mound, he is going to be a problem. He views himself as one of the stars of the team, one of the faces of the team. He ain't that. So, by the way, this is the right move. Verdugo against lefties this season, entering play on Sunday because the numbers haven't finalized. 230 batting average, 301 slug, okay? 336 on base. Ref Snyder against lefties. 349 batting average compared to Verdugo at 230. 476 on base percentage. We've told you multiple times that is the best of any hitter in Major League Baseball in terms of his on base percentage against lefties. Verdugo 336. Oh, by the way, 992 OPS for Ref Snyder, 637 for Verdugo. This was the right move. So Ref Snyder, 119 points better in average, 140 points better in on-base percentage, 145 points better in slugging percentage, 285 points better in OPS. Cora's choice was an easy one. He was trying to win the baseball game. So he put the better option into the game to try to win. Unfortunately, the problem for Verdugo is this. He thinks he's on a different level. You're not the golden goose, right? You're not Rafi. You're not Yoshida. You haven't proven yourself that you should not get pinch hit for. You should be pinch hit for late in the game when there's a lefty on the mound because the odds are you're not going to do anything with the bat. The problem is Verdugo right now views himself as a great player when he's just a good player. So I, I just don't understand why he thought he should hit. He thinks he deserves this opportunity. I know Cora and Verdugo both said this is not the reason he was late. I don't know. I, I'm just putting it out there. Like there could have been certainly other reasons for Verdugo being late to the ballpark. Like, but you would think that there's a carryover effect here. And I just wonder how this is going to go the next few weeks here. Because Verdugo after the game said, I got seven weeks left to end this on a high note. Remember, he's still under club control next year. And I know you can say, oh, Brian, he's just referring to the rest of the season. No, he's not. Verdugo's referring to the rest of his career. He knows that he was shopped at the trading deadline. Okay, so he knows that the Red Sox do not want to give him a long-term extension, which he publicly has asked for like multiple occasions. He's the guy talking to the media about the extension. It's not like the media is trying to get Alex Verdugo an extension or talking about, hey, why haven't they signed Alex Verdugo to an extension, right? Like, Remember Raphael Devers for like two years? Like, get him signed. Get him signed. And even Bogarts, and it turns out the organization may be right about that one. But remember, like, get Bogarts signed. Nobody's saying get Alex Verdugo signed. Nobody thinks you should give this guy an extension. Yet he wants the extension. He's the one, like, putting it out there that he should be getting extended. So obviously he's pissed off about this whole situation. And here's the other thing. He knows he's gone. They took him off the block because they couldn't get anything for him. Right? I mean, you think about it. He's a 27-year-old corner outfielder. That hits for no power. His career high in home runs is 13. This season, he has a 424 slugging percentage. That's 85th out of 143 hitters. 
Yes, the defense has improved. But even like this great bat-to-ball skills that Verdugo has, 343 on base percentage, which is a good number, but it's 52nd in Major League Baseball. So he's not even in the top 50. He's supposed to be this elite bat-to-ball guy. He's not even in the top 50 in on base percentage. He just went a month where he was legitimately the worst hitter in Major League Baseball from a statistical perspective. We outlined it on the pod. So this whole idea that the Red Sox had at the trading deadline, which, by the way, more on this in a second here, they wanted to get a controllable pitcher. <laughs> what team in their right mind wants Verdugo as that piece? Okay, we're going to give you this year and two more years of club control for Mitch Keller. What are you giving us? Hey, uh, what do you guys think of Verdugo? Uh, yeah, uh, we're good. Um, nope, we don't want Alex Verdugo because, like, you don't want to extend him. We want to extend him either. Why the hell do we want this guy? Okay, it just makes no sense. There's no value on the player. One more year of arbitration, motivation issues, character issues, and in terms of his character as a baseball player. And this is the second time he's been benched this season. He got pulled from a game earlier this season when he wouldn't run out a ground ball. There, it, there are issues all the time with this guy. And the Red Sox, here's the thing that I would say to Verdugo about this, is the Red Sox would love not to pinch hit for you. They, they don't want to, okay? The problem is, and they would love to get an extension done with you. Because you are the main piece, the jewel of the Mookie Betts trade. The problem is you don't warrant the extension and you don't warrant the fact where somebody shouldn't be pinch hitting for you. You're just not there as a player. And the manager, speaking of the fact that he has issues with motivation, he needs the manager to call him out to get motivated. After the season, Cora calls him out. He needed that to get motivated. And here's the thing that pisses me off more than anything else. Because I told you the defense has improved. He is fifth among outfielders and defensive runs safe. Remember, this is his 27-year-old season. Last year, I know he's dealing with a little bit of an injury, but his 26-year-old season, okay? So a year ago, he was at minus five defensive runs save that was tied for 45th, 44th rather among outfielders. What does that tell you? <laughs> I know, like I said, injury at times, but he was also out of shape. It tells you that the guy doesn't have the necessary work ethic. He doesn't come to the ballpark the Every day, lazy. Now you can say, oh, Brian, what about all this defense he's showing? Great, but he's lazy as it pertains to his work ethic. There is no way around it, okay? He's way too good to have not taken a massive step over the past three to four years here with this Red Sox organization. He's too good of a player. His bat-to-ball skills are elite. He's never going to be an elite player because he doesn't have the work ethic and the drive that these other guys have. Okay, and if you just look at it in terms of war, since the Mookie Betts trade, Mookie, 18.3 wins above replacement, fourth during that stretch, Verdugo, 7.1. So you're talking about 11.2 difference. And look, this trade was going to look bad no matter what. But with Connor Wong looking like a long-term catcher, he really does. This is your catcher for the foreseeable future. If Verdugo had just taken a step forward and you could say, okay, this is a professional, everyday player that we can trust to play for us for the next decade or so, meaning like when you first got him. Problem is, no, you don't have a professional right now. This guy, he's. this is the most important series of the season for the Red Sox against the team that you're competing against to try to get that final wild card spot. And this guy decides to show up two hours late to the ballpark. So that quote about seven weeks, he's right. It's time to get rid of the guy. The problem is, I just don't know what the value is going to be. That's why I kept saying that I wanted them to move on from Verdugo at the trading deadline because the value is only diminishing. His value is shit now. Okay, and you talk about letting your team down. They wanted Verdugo in the lineup on Saturday because there was a righty Berrios on the mound. Like, they needed him. If you look at it, Verdugo, by the way, has good numbers against righties. 286 with an 823 OPS. 
All eight of his home runs are against right-handed pitching. Berrios, 261 against righties compared to, excuse me, the batting average against, I should say. Left-handed hitters are hitting 261 against Berrios. And if you look at righties, they're hitting 217 while lefties are hitting 261. Sorry, that was a mouthful, but you get my point. Lefties are hit Berrios, righties don't hit Berrios. So Duvall's in the lineup because Verdugo's late to the ballpark. Your team needed you against Berrios, where you're a good hitter against right-handed pitching. You're nowhere to be found. It's just unacceptable, and it's just the whole thing is now adding up for Alex Verdugo. And sometimes you think about it as like, you look at the elite skills when you go back to this trade that you made where Alex Verdugo comes back as part of the Mookie Betts deal. Great bat-to-ball skills. You love all that. But it's the character of the player in terms of, hey, what are you going to be like day in and day out in the clubhouse? This guy is way too inconsistent from year to year, and now we're seeing from day to day. Okay, so that's the first thing is Verdugo, his days with the Red Sox are numbered, and the shit he pulled over the weekend, that that stuff he pulled on Saturday, it's unbecoming of anybody to put on that uniform. I mean, it's disgraceful what he did. Your team is trying to make it to the playoffs, and this is what you do? Ridiculous. Okay, speaking of Saturday, it's not the only ridiculous thing that happened in that game. What happened in the ninth inning? That was embarrassing. First and third, okay, one out, you're down five to three. Trying to make a comeback here. You have a huge hit from Urias, who's actually hitting the ball since he came over. Duvall scores, you make it five to four. Okay, so then it's first and second with one out. Connor Wong hits a massive fly ball to left field. Okay. Everybody on the Red Sox apparently thinks it's out of the ballpark. Remember, one out, first and second. McGuire is celebrating. Carlos Fables, the third base coach, thinks it's gone. So first of all, Fables is going to be better. You're the third base coach. You can't be out there celebrating. like, Or he wasn't really celebrating. But you get my point is you have got to know that that ball is not going out of the ballpark. McGuire, I don't know what he's doing. It doesn't behoove you to do the celebration down to third. Just make sure that it actually gets out of the ballpark. Because if you go halfway there, right, even if he makes a catch in center field, you can get back to second base. And... If it goes off the wall, you're halfway there. You can round third and maybe get home. But nonetheless, it doesn't even matter. At least you'll be bases loaded with one out, right? Like, But the problem is it doesn't even matter, like, the situational stuff. He just thought it was out of the ballpark. Like, I, this is, you cannot make this shit up how the Red Sox are losing games over the weekend. The guy literally thought the ball was out of the ballpark. You went first and second with one out. You get doubled up at second base. Just Alex Cora said after the game, just a bad baseball play. No kidding. I mean, it's a great point by Cora. Fabulous doesn't know what he's doing. I, I What an embarrassing look, by the way, for McGuire. This guy's celebrating down to third. It was just embarrassing, and it just kind of sums up how things have gone over the past two weeks for this team. Horrible, horrible ending to the game. Okay, let's go to this game on Sunday. So, uh, by the way, I thought Duran could have made that play on the ground rule double, and luckily it was a ground rule double because if it wasn't, they score a run there. But nonetheless, Murphy has been good for this team, but then he hangs a curveball to Chapman. He doubles. He makes it three to nothing. Biggio doubles bad slider. Yet another run there. Excuse me. Chapman made it two to nothing. Biggio doubles makes it three to nothing. Then he walks Kirk. Kiermaier uh, single makes it four to nothing. Game's basically over at that point. And then we got guys coming out of the bullpen, which this has now become a theme for this team, is these guys we never heard of before this season. You think back to the 2020 season with Ron Renneke when you saw these guys like, who is this guy? Who, who exactly is this pitcher? That's what we're going through right now. You have... Mauricio Jovera, okay, who's back in there again. He just gave up two earned on Friday, gave up the bomb to Varsho. So he comes into the game. This is unbelievable to me. This guy was DFA'd by the Phillies. He was DFA'd by the Giants. He's not good. 
He's and by the way, the one of the innings he had in this game, just embarrassing. He walked in this this isn't one inning. He walked Biggio, he hit Kirk, single to Kiermaier middle middle, and then another single, walked Belt, hit Snyder, Chapman singled on a bad two seamer. This guy gave up five earned in an inning and a third. Okay. <laughs> he hit two batters and he walked two. He hit or walked as many batters as he recorded outs. Think about that. If you combine the walks and the hit batsman, it's four. He got four outs. That is very difficult to do. I almost should give him an award for this. Okay. Then you look at the walk rate, his career, 11.9% walk rate. The guy's command is pure shit. Okay. That would have ranked 137th out of 163 qualified relievers this season. So no command. His career strikeout rate is 23.8%, below the average of 25%. So he can't strike guys out. He can't throw strikes. Perfect combination. Come on down. Okay? And then there's Richard Blyer, who he gave up the bond to Chapman on Friday night. Let's look at Blyer. So coming into play on Sunday, 1.59 home runs per nine innings. 223rd out of 253 relievers that have thrown at least 20 innings. His strikeout rate, 12.1%, 251st out of those 253. 1.41 whip, 189th out of those 253. 302 opponents batting average, 247th out of those 253. Okay, so we knew he couldn't strike people out when they signed him, but he can't get guys out, period, now. So this is what happens when you're short and you don't add a single arm of any significance at the deadline. Not a bullpen guy, not a starter. You added nothing. They were holding off, waiting for the 15th. They thought that, hey, the 15th is the magic date where Chris Sale looked good again on Sunday in a rehab outing. We're going to get Whitlock back, who's going to be coming out of the bullpen. We're going to get Tanner Houck back. We feel good about this thing, right? But the problem is, eventually, the floor was going to fall out because you were patching this together. And give this team credit. They were able to fight for a while. But the problem is there's a domino effect because once you have one of these bullpen games that goes south or one of your starters doesn't have it like we saw with Paxton on Friday night, the whole thing starts to fall over and collapse. And that's where the Red Sox are at right now. And the thing that irritates you is the Red Sox, they didn't even need a high leverage guy. They didn't need an elite relief pitcher, right? You have Winkowski, you have Jansen, you have Martin, you have good back of the bullpen guys. You just needed competent arms. The Red Sox, Blyer is not a competent arm. Jovera is not a competent arm. You don't have enough good quality arms back there right now. Blyer is a complete joke. I mean, that guy sucks, okay? So it's just the drop-off is so significant. So if Murphy doesn't have it, like we saw, or one of your starters doesn't have it, what are you doing? Since the start of June, entering play on Sunday, the bullpen, 239 and two-thirds, that's the third most. So because you don't have enough starting pitching, you have this huge drop-off in the bullpen from the elite guys to the guys that you can't depend on whatsoever, to the point where everything is falling apart because there's just not enough. You're short in the rotation and you're short in the bullpen. And I come back to this. The Kluber issue is a big one, right? Because beginning of the season through May 21st, Kluber was a starter. 626 ERA. During that stretch, that was 93rd of the 100 starters it through at least 40 innings. 2.38 home runs per nine. That was 99th. He was giving up bombs. That's why the ERA was so bad. And the problem is he only gave you nine starts, 41 and two-thirds. Last season, he gave the Rays 164 innings. So north of, you look at the difference, there are 120 innings. So yeah, it's not just that he was bad. It's just the fact that he couldn't eat up innings whatsoever. You couldn't even put him out there because he was going to get absolutely roasted. He was giving up rockets all over the ballpark, right? And then there's Chris Sale. 
where, and I get it, like the whole Nate Evaldi thing, Nate goes to Texas, so then you got to figure something else out. But this is the problem. I mean, the Kluber thing really screwed you over. And then you look at Sale, right? Here's another thing. You thought that Sale was somebody you could depend on coming into the season. And you know me, I love Sale. But you think about it, 59 innings this season, just 11 starts, okay? And it's great that he's on his way back, but it may be too little too late, right? That's the problem with depending on Chris Sale from a health perspective, right? And if you look at it, the first month he wasn't great. Three out of his first five starts, he gave up five earned or more. So you were banking on a healthy sale. That didn't happen. And look at what has transpired, right? You don't have him in the rotation right now. So Kluber was a non-entity. He sucked. Chris Sale, again, injured. And then there's Whitlock, who Whitlock has never proven he can stay healthy as a starter, right? He had Tommy John when he was a starter. When he came to the Red Sox, his best year, 2021, that's when he was in the bullpen. And now we're seeing it again as it pertains to the injuries. Had him last year as well. And 10 starts, 51 and two-thirds. The ERA is north of five. And now he's going back to the bullpen. So there were questions with all these guys coming into the season as it pertains to your rotation. Whitlock, can he be a starter? Sales health. And Kluber, is he still good? And we found out the answer to all those questions. Kluber's not good. Sale can't stay healthy. And we still don't know if Whitlock's a starter. So those things have all added up. And the one thing I'll say that has completely aggravated me during this process. And we're recording during Sunday Night Baseball, so maybe he'll come on the mound tonight as we're recording. But they need arms. We're dealing with the Blyers of the world. You know who's actually good right now? Ryan Brazier. I kid you not. Ryan Brazier, okay? (laughs) He's now, he's picked up a cutter. He's throwing cutters to lefties. They're hitting 0.83 against it. So south of 100 against his cutter. The problem with Brazier is when he's on, he's really on. When he's off, he's really off. And the Dodgers, to their credit, have found the good version of Ryan Brazier. So if you look at the difference, 729 ERA for Brazier when he was with the Red Sox. 163rd of 193 relievers at that time. Then you look at with the Dodgers, that number's at 094, 14th out of 194. So a 635 difference in the inning is like two, or the inning differential is like two innings. Like it's basically the same workload. Hard hit rate, balls off the bat, 95 plus miles an hour. 53% with the Red Sox, 189th of 193. You know what that number is with the Dodgers? 25%, (laughs) 19th, 28 percentage points better, okay? How about the opponent's batting average? 168, uh, 168th rather of 193 with the Red Sox at 286. <laughs> with 286 with the Dodgers. 113, eighth out of those 194, 173 points better. By the way, is also his ground ball rate is 3.1 percentage points better. So this is another thing we're talking about, like giving up on guys. And I get it. Like the Brazier thing had gone on for a long time, but it does sort of sting that it's like, oh shit. If they got Brazier right here, well, then you have an answer to a lot of the issues you've had. Like, if you had this version of Brazier for the Dodgers pitching for the Red Sox right now, they'd be in much better shape. So it's just all these things are adding up, and it does feel like this was sort of the weekend from hell for this Red Sox team, where you have blunders all over the field once again, and you have an issue with a player, which that was the thing that sticks out more so than anything else in Alex Verdugo. And you felt like, from High and Bloom's perspective, it looked like, okay, you're starting to feel like if you're High and Bloom, I feel good about this thing, right? I mean, they've been puffing their chests out about their farm system, and it feels like, and to their credit, it does feel like they're onto something, but they thought they could get away with it for two more weeks. We can get away with this situation as it pertains to being short with our pitching for two more weeks. Proved incorrect. Did not work whatsoever. And now this team 
may be porked. And I said a couple of weeks ago, as recently as like, what, last week, that I felt like there's no chance Bloom, like the organization says it's time to move on. And I still think that that's the most likely scenario. You let Bloom finish this thing out, especially considering where the farm system is. But what's transpiring right now for this team? It is unbecoming and it is embarrassing for the Boston Red Sox that two out of every five starts, you're getting bullpen games. And it was cute that they were getting through with it. But now that it's burning you, shit looks bad for Bloom. Bottom line, I mean, come on. Give the team an opportunity here. Give the team an opportunity. We're not asking for an elite pitcher. We're just asking for an arm or two. And they thought they could get away with it. They got burned. All right, a lot more coming up. Coming up next, I will continue my top five series. So coming up next, my top five big men for the Celtics since the start of 2000. All right, time now for another top five list because we did the top five Celtics guards since 2000 on the Thursday pod. So today, we do the top five Celtics bigs since 2000. Now, just to be clear on this, like Kevin Garnett listed as a power forward when he played for the Celtics. He's a center, right? Like he's a big. And I know that you played him and Perk together. But my point being is he's a big. He's not a wing. Like the way that I'm doing this is I had my guards list. I'll eventually have my wings list, which is a nice debate at number one and number two between Tatum and Pierce. But also when you look at it in terms of the bigs, it's traditional big man. Like Kevin Garnett is a big man. Perk is a big man. Al Horford's a big man, right? So these are just my top five bigs from the Celtics since the year 2000. Okay, so number one on my list is, this is the easiest pick, it's Kevin Garnett. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. We went through some of the KG stuff when I went through my favorite players since 2000, my favorite players to watch. But the bottom line is, this is the most important Celtic since the 1980s, right? And look, you can give me Pierce and what he did. He was our guy, right? But he was not good enough to be the lead guy on a championship level team. He was not Duncan. He was not Shaq. He was not Kobe. He was in a group lower than that, right? And even with Garnett, going back to his Minnesota days, you knew he was good enough to win as the main guy. He just needed a better team around him. Just think about it. Kevin Garnett as an MVP or was an MVP before he came over here, right? And the problem was with the Minnesota Timberwolves, they just didn't have enough around the guy. I mean, you go to the fact that they beat that Kings team in what, 2004, that team was an absolute wagon for a four to five year stretch with the Chris Webbers, the Mike Bibbies, the Peja Stoyakovich's of the world. 
Garnett beat that team in the postseason, and they end up losing four games to two against the Lakers in the conference finals. But Garnett in that playoff run, 24.3 points per game, 14.6 rebounds per game, 5.1 assists per game. He's controlling everything from the big man spot. He was everything for that team. That season in 2004, the Minnesota Timberwolves were 19 points per 100 possessions better with him on the court than off the court. That season, that was the best mark in the entire NBA. Okay, so just ridiculous numbers from Kevin Garnett. The point being, Garnett was good enough to win a title as the main guy. And Minnesota just couldn't put the proper team around him. So that 4 team, their second best player was Latrell Sprewell, who certainly had his moment in the NBA. But Latrell Sprewell could not be the second best player on a championship team, right? As the second guy on a title team, no chance. So the sad thing about Garnett is if he was playing in sort of this era of basketball, right, where we see player movement so often, he gets to the Celtics a lot earlier. The guy spent most of his career, what, 14 seasons in Minnesota. If you go from 98 through 2007, and if you look at Garnett in terms of games played and minutes per game, okay, from 98 through 07, 82 games, 39.3 minutes per game, 47 games, and that was the lockout season, okay, 37.9 minutes per game, 81 in 2000, 40 minutes per game. In 01, he played 81 games, 39 and a half minutes per game. In 02, he played 81 games, 39.2 minutes per game. In 03, 82 games, 40.5 minutes per game. 04, 82 games, 38.1 minutes per game, excuse me, 39.4 minutes per game. In 05, same thing, the 82 games, but that's the 38.1 minutes per game. 06, he played 76 games, 38.9 minutes per game. And in 2007, he played 76 games, 39.4 minutes per game, okay? So 82 games four times during that stretch, only under 38 minutes per game once in that entire stretch from 1998 through 2007. So if you just compare that to the modern-day NBA, two guys this entire season, or I should say two guys this season, played north of 37 minutes per game. And one of them was Kyrie, who we know was sort of limited in how many games he actually played, right? That just tells you how many minutes and how many games, period, Kevin Garnett was playing for that Minnesota organization. So he sacrificed everything for them, and he got what in return? An ill-equipped roster, right? He didn't have the firepower to go up against Shaq and Kobe or Duncan and the group they had in San Antonio. Even Weber who, remember, Kevin Garnett, as we alluded to, he beat that team. They still had Mike Bibby and Peja Stojakovic on that team as well. So think about how frustrating that has to be, right? You're in the Kobe, Shaq, Duncan conversation in terms of the talent level and the impact. We gave you the numbers, the impact you have on the game. And yet all those other teams are putting the proper pieces around their players, right? The Lakers were loaded. Even that Kings team I mentioned, Duncan always had a good team and the best coach in the NBA and Greg Popovich. Garnett had nothing to work with, right? And so since Garnett, this is why I come back to the Celtics portion of this, is so since Garnett put all the mileage on his knees in Minnesota, when he came to the Celtics, it was one great year, right? He was great in his second year too, but then he got hurt, of course. He was dealing with the knee situation, and of course, we didn't see him in the 2009 playoffs, and I think we can all agree Garnett was not the same guy. Still a very effective player in 2010. That team made it to the NBA Finals, but he wasn't the same guy that he was a couple of years prior where he just completely dominated Paul Gasol. You could make a real convincing argument that Gasol could have been the MVP or rather should have been the MVP of the 2010 Finals over Kobe Bryant. I mean, that's a real argument you could have. But nonetheless, so that era where 
it was sort of Garnett wanted to prove that he could tough it out with his team and could win with his team. If that decision just happens after eight years, right, for Kevin Garnett, rather than all those years he spent in Minnesota, you think about it, he gets to the Celtics at, what, 27 instead of 31? So if you look at the four years prior to arriving in Boston that Garnett had with Minnesota, 24 points, 13.9 rebounds, 5.0 assists. Like, he was a tremendous passer. He was the hub of the offense in Minnesota, 2.2 blocks per game. The following season, 22.2 points per game, 13.5 rebounds per game, 5.7 assists per game, 1.4 blocks per game. Next season, 21.8, 12.7 in terms of the rebounds per game, 4.1 assists, 1.4 blocks. Next season, 22.4 points per game, 12.8 rebounds per game, 4.1 assists per game, and 1.7 blocks per game. I mean, this is four consecutive seasons of just dominance, right? The on-off differential, right? In terms of the numbers before he came over to the Celtics, the year prior, 16.8 points per 100 better were the Timberwolves with Garnett on the court rather than off the court. That's via cleaning the glass. The following year with the Celtics, 16.9. So the impact was still there with the Celtics. So basically, he had four years of plus 20 and 10 with the Minnesota Timberwolves. And you could make a convincing argument by the numbers, by the impact numbers, that he was the most impactful player in the entire NBA. So... If Garnett comes over four years prior, Celtics, they won in 08. You win at least one more title, right? I mean, if you didn't get three with Garnett, it would have been sort of a disappointment, right? And if you look at it, even the year that when he came over to the Celtics, he was in the he was the best player in terms of on-off differential in the entire NBA via cleaning the glass. You look at the plus-minus numbers in the playoffs, the Celtics outscored teams by 186 points with Garnett on the court. In that 2008 championship run, that was 33 points better than any other player in the postseason. During the regular season, he was plus 737. That was second in the NBA to only Paul Pierce. Those were the only two guys over 700 minutes. And here's the thing. He played nine games less than Pierce did. (laughs) If you look at the per 100, plus 16.5 points per 100 possessions were the Celtics better than their opponent with Garnett on the court. That was 2.3 points better than Paul Pierce. So this is crystal clear that even Garnett, even though he got over here late in his career, he is so imperative and important to this organization. You do not have a championship without Kevin Garnett. The only thing that's, and obviously he's the number one big man. The only thing that sucks about this is the more and more you look back at that era of Celtics basketball. I truly believe they went in 2009. If Garnett doesn't go down, I know a lot of you share that same sentiment. And remember, The Celtics were better in 09 than they were in 08 before Garnett went down with the injury, right? So my whole point with this is just Garnett was so great and the banner flies forever and all that. It's just, man, if he played in this NBA, he would have been gone already. Guys don't stick with organizations that long unless they're really in a situation that is perfect for them. Steph Curry with the Golden State Warriors. Like that makes a lot of sense. Why would Steph Curry want to leave? But guys ordinarily move to different locations. We're hoping that doesn't happen with Jason Tatum down the road, but you get my point. I just, I love Garnett. He's one of my favorite players of all time. He's the most important Celtic, as I mentioned, since the 1980s. But you have that thing in the back of your mind where you're like, man, what would this have been if Pierce and Garnett got together just a little bit earlier, four years earlier, which if we're in the modern day NBA, it would have happened. All right, number two on my list is Al Horford. So Al Horford's first stint here, 
I know a lot of people get caught up in sort of the money he was making because he was a max contract player, but that's the only way you were going to get him. <laughs> he was going for the most money. But if you look at the impact Al had, first year with the Celtics, they outscored teams by 4.9 points per with, per 100 with Al on the court. That was in the 85th percentile via cleaning the glass. The next year, they were 7.8 points per 100 better. That was in the 93rd percentile. The following year, plus 6.7, that was in the 89th percentile via cleaning the glass. So elite level impact that he had, even though it's not the crazy, he's not going to give you the 20 points consistently. The impact was certainly there with Al Horford. And remember at the time when Al came to the Celtics, there was this perception that the Celtics can't land big free agents. And it's sort of still a thing with the Celtics. But anyway, they were in the Durant sweepstakes. Remember, you had Kelly Olenek for some reason was in that group with like Tom Brady and David Ortiz was calling in to see if they could recruit Kevin Durant in the Hamptons, but they were in on Durant. They didn't get him. They settled for Al Horford. But what Al Horford did do is he put the wheels in motion for the following season. Now, Brad gets credit for this, too, because, of course, he was Gordon Hayward's college coach. But you get Gordon Hayward the next year because of the connection with Brad and the fact that Al was here first. Like, if Al's not here, I'm not sure Gordon Hayward comes to this organization, the whole IT thing. That's a totally different story. But you get my point. Al was sort of the first guy to come in where you were actually big game hunting and you were able to land Al. And I think that was important in terms of getting Gordon Hayward here. Okay, so he deserves some credit for that. And the two seasons since coming back, if you look at Al, think about the guy that is the young center on this team with Robert Williams, right? Robert Williams, the past two seasons since Al came back to the Celtics, 61 games and 35 games, okay? So we're looking at, what, 96 games in terms of the regular season over the past two years. When you look at Al during that stretch, it's 132 games. So he's played 36 more games than Robert Williams. So when your young big is not available, Al has stepped up for this team just by being on the court. Where would this team have been over the past two seasons without Al Horford? I'll tell you where they would have been. Fucked. Remember what happened when Daniel Tice played? He was absolutely atrocious for that team last year during the postseason run, okay? And then the underrated part of the Celtics is we talk so much, or the underrated part about the Celtics defense, I should say, and I've talked about it on multiple occasions, and we talked about it when we chatted about Smart last week, is the two things we point to in terms of why that defense became elite, A, Marcus Smart, and in no particular order, B, Robert Williams going into that help defender, Romer roll, Rover roll, whatever you want to call it, where he could come over and block shots, okay? So what that made the Celtics team develop into is the switchiest team in the NBA, right? They switched more screens than anybody else in the league in the 2021-2022 season. So what did that mean for Al Horford? Remember, a 35-year-old big man at that particular point in time. Al guarded the most possessions in isolation in the entire NBA. Nobody defended more isolation possessions than Al Horford in the 2021-2022 season. Okay, so the other thing is, well, and by the way, that was 25 possessions more than any other player in the league. So then the question is, well, was he good in isolation as a defender? Yeah, he was actually elite. Opponents were 51 of 151, 33.8%. That was in the 81st percentile. So not only did he defend the most isolation possessions, he was also doing it at an elite level. Then you look at the playoff run where the Celtics, of course, make it all the way to the NBA Finals. 68 possessions defended in isolation, 24 more than any other player. And opponents were just 19 of 58, 33%. That was in the 79th percentile. So great isolation defender. All those switches, you got to deal with guards. You got to deal with wings. He held up during the regular season. He did the same thing as it pertains to the postseason. 
So that Celtics, that great Celtics defense, Al deserves a ton of credit for that because if you don't have a big man that can switch like Al, that whole thing with Robert Williams playing off the ball as the roamer, not covering the big, it can't work, right? And then I know his shooting dipped in the postseason this past season, but if you look at him during the regular season, he was 145 of 325 from deep. That's 44.6%. That was second in the NBA to only Luke Kennard, right? <laughs> Al Horford, number two in the NBA in three-point percentage this past season. And that 325 three-point attempts, 60 more than any other season. So to do that at that age, at 36, say, hey, I'm just going to start bombing. I take on my role as the spot-up guy. That's just huge for this team. And remember, the Celtics, at the beginning of the season, first couple months, they were the best offense in the NBA. They, of course, finished with an elite offense from a statistical perspective. Al Horford deserves some credit for that, even if he wasn't the same guy in terms of actually hitting threes when it came to the postseason. Now, the one thing I will say in defense of Al in the postseason, the Celtics were plus 59 with Al on the court. Only Tatum was better. And if you look at the impact that Al has had on this team over the past couple of years, the ability to be an elite shooter, the ability to play elite defense, and the leadership that Al Horford comes with, and an ability to change roles from season to season. I'm the ISO defender this year. I'm the great shooter this year. Just He's so consistent, and he's so versatile as a player that it's really helped this Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown roster over the past couple of years. So Al Horford, to me, unequivocally number two on this list after Kevin Garnett. That brings me to number three. Okay, now this is where this thing gets a little juicy here, okay? This thing starts to get a little wild once you get to number three because there is a significant drop-off from my perspective in terms of the best bigs for the Celtics since 2000. There's a big drop-off after, well, there's obviously a huge drop between Garnett and Al, and then there's another huge drop between Al and everybody else. So number three on the list, this is kind of unconventional, if you will. I'm going with Al Jefferson, okay? And look, I get that a lot of you aren't going to like this, but you have guys like Perk, who I'll get to. He was on a championship team. And other guys that have played a lot more in a Celtics uniform. But the reason I put Al Horford here is because of the value. Excuse me. The reason I put Al Jefferson here. I'm getting my Al's mixed up. The reason I put Al Jefferson here is because of the impact or because of the value he brought back for the organization, right? Now, it was still a bad trade, the Garnett trade for the Timberwolves any way you slice it. But Al Jefferson, not Kendrick Perkins, was the jewel of that trade, right? Perk remained on the Celtics. He was one of the only young guys that stayed with the Celtics. And Al Jefferson, that's how you get the deal done. You're not making this deal if you're Minnesota, if Al Jefferson's not part of it. And remember at the time, you have Kevin McHale, who's running that Minnesota organization. Big man, arguably the best footwork in NBA history. I mean, you got Hakeem the Dream and all that. But I'm talking about just some of the moves that he had in the post. One of the best post players of all time, right? I mean, the footwork comment, I take that back. Obviously, that's Hakeem. But you get my point is one of the great low post scorers in NBA history. And if you look at Al Jefferson at the age of 22, 16 points per game and 11 rebounds per game with the Celtics in just his third NBA season, he was really good. That's why it was enticing to Minnesota to make sure that they got Al Jefferson in this deal. And the Celtics, if you look at it via clean in the glass that season, they were 2.1 points per 100 better with Al Jefferson on the court. That was in the 74th percentile. So on a really bad tanking Celtics team, Al Jefferson had a really good season, and he could operate in the post. And if you look at it, the short mid-range, that 4 to 14 feet area via cleaning the glass, he was in the 72nd percentile shooting from that area. And then you look at the fact that he was 12th in the NBA in points in the paint that season at 11.4, and he was just 22. And look, he had a nice career after the Celtics, right? He was an all-NBA third-teamer at one point at 13-14, 21.8 points per game, 
10.8 rebounds per game with, at that point, the Charlotte Bobcats. And he had, in his career, 320 and 10 seasons. Now, unfortunately, what sort of transpired is the league sort of passed Al Jefferson by, right? The traditional on-the-block guy started to go away, right? So that hurt him in terms of the career that he was able to have. And so, look, great season for the Celtics. Then, of course, our great season with the Celtics. Had three of them here. Then he gets traded. But when we compared him to a guy like Perk, here's the difference. Could you have won a championship with another center that wasn't Kendrick Perkins? Unequivocally, yes. You had Garnett. You had Ray. You had Paul Pierce. You had Rondo. Like, you had more than enough to win a championship without Kendrick Perkins. And I'm not trying to belittle Kendrick Perkins, but it's just a different level of player Al Jefferson was. Could Perk have gotten you Kevin Garnett as the main piece? No, okay? So from my perspective, Al Jefferson was the more valuable Celtic because of what he brought in, which was he was enticing enough to say to Minnesota, yeah, we'll trade you Garnett if Al Jefferson's in the deal. So the value of Al provided this organization more value than what Kendrick Perkins provided on the court, okay? That's my take, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, so that brings me to number four, which ironically is Kendrick Perkins. And like I said, I'm not trying to belittle Perk. I'm just saying there's different levels to this, right? Perk, eight, season, eight seasons with the Celtics, but he only averaged 10 points once, okay? And Perk, by the way, really good contributor to the team. If you look at it, even before Garnett was here in 04-05, the Celtics were 3.1 percentage points better in terms of their effective field goal percentage with him on the court defensively than they were with him off the court. That was in the 91st percentile via cleaning the glass. So he did a really good job from a defensive perspective. And look, if he plays in the modern day NBA, (laughs) he's got some trouble in terms of his defense. But nonetheless, he played at the time that he played at. And if you look at the title year, the Celtics were in the 98th percentile in defense with him on the court. 98th percentile with Kendrick Perkins on the floor in terms of the defense. The Celtics on the court, uh, on the court rather, with Perk, they outscored teams that season, the title year, by 14.7 points per 100, 99th percentile, just ridiculous numbers. On the court numbers, if you look at it in terms of Perk, the Celtics outscored teams in 0809, this is all via cleaning the glass, by 8.2 points per 100 in 0809, that was in the 90th percentile, 7.5 in 09. 2010, that was in the 92nd percentile, and 7.8 in 10-11, that was in the 89th percentile. And I think some of this stuff with Perk, you can say, yeah, he played with a lot of good teammates. I understand all that. That's certainly part of the calculus here. But also, if you think about Perk, he freed up Garnett to do more things defensively, right? Where if he can handle the bigs, okay, then Garnett can do more roaming. Garnett can muck things up more. And that's exactly what Garnett did. He was an outstanding playmaker as a defender. And if you look at the numbers with Garnett and Perk on the court at the same time, In the championship year, they outscored teams by 18.9 points per 100. So they outscored teams by nearly 19 points per 100 possessions with those two bigs on the court together. And the defensive rating was a ridiculous 94.6. And if you just kind of compare these numbers to what we saw in terms of with those guys off the court, right? The Celtics, their net rating that season when they won the title was 10.8, which is just an absolutely ridiculous number. That was the best in the league. So with Perk and Garnett together, that number's all the way up to 18.9. So you're what, 8.1 points per 100 better. If you look at the Celtics in terms of the defensive rating that season, they led the league at 98.1 with Perk and Garnett. That number's at 94.6. So you're 3.5 points per 100 better with those two guys on the court, right? So Perk was a tremendous role player and fit perfectly with that group because he didn't need the ball. Do the dirty work, 
rebound, take on the big man matchups. That's all we're asking for you to do, right? That's all that he needed to do. And to Perk's credit, he thrived in that role. He was really good. Now, his post-NBA career, clearly he's had a ton of success as a broadcaster. The guy is all over the place, whether it be first take, whether it be all these different NBA shows, and it looks like now he's going to be part of that studio show with what has transpired over the past couple of months with ESPN. But he's had some horrible takes too. This doesn't affect his Celtics thing, but I just thought this is interesting to bring up. He said Giannis isn't Batman. Chris Middleton is. Giannis goes and wins the championship. He has 50 points in the NBA Finals. He also said prior to this past season, Westbrook and Patrick Beverly were the best defensive backcourt in the NBA. They had a 116.4 defensive rating with those guys on the court together this year. (laughs) Only five teams are worse than that this season. So essentially, they played like the 24th ranked defense in the NBA with Beverly and Westbrook on the court together, who Perk said that was the best defensive backcourt in the NBA. I don't know what he was smoking when it came to that take. And everybody knows that Russell Westbrook doesn't play defense anymore. So the other portion of that is just the fact that those guys, neither one of them finished the season with the Lakers. Westbrook with the Clippers, of course, and Beverly went to the Chicago Bulls. So that was a horrible take. And then he said Steph would never win a title again before two seasons ago, and he wins a championship that year. So, and then you had the whole issue, the whole Jokic thing, which I don't want to get into that in terms of the NBA MVP voters. But let's just say this, Perk has had some really, really bad takes. I give him credit, making a lot of noise as a broadcaster. I pretty much agree with basically nothing he says. Absolutely nothing he says. He's usually wrong. Like, I'd say his hit rate is about 10%. I'd say one out of every 10 takes that he has is actually right. So anyway, but... Give him a lot of credit for what he did for the Celtics organization. Being the role player, he was an important piece to that championship team. All right, number five on my list is Robert Williams. So, Rob, when I was talking about Al, I got into some of the disappointment with Robert Williams in terms of the games missed. And Rob has missed so much time. But we can't deny the impact that he's had. If you go to last year's NBA Finals, the Celtics outscored the Warriors by 30 points with Rob on the court. A series they lost four games to two, remember. That was third best in the entire series. The Celtics, with Rob off the court against Golden State, were outscored by 54 points. So we're talking about an 84-point swing with Rob on the court compared to Rob off the court. That's how impactful he was in that series. He spooked the Warriors. And if you look at just that season, the Celts were 10.5 points per 100 better with Rob on the court than off. That was in the 97th percentile from cleaning the glass. They had a 104.4 defensive rating that season with Rob on the court. That was in the 96th percentile. They were in the 97th percentile as a defense with Rob in the court this past season. He, of course, as we mentioned, we're talking about this with Al, but him and that rover role was just incredibly destructive on teams. Teams shot just 35.6% in the short mid-range area two years ago because what happens is that's that 4 to 14 feet area. If you're not getting to the basket, you weren't scoring in that mid-range area because Robert Williams could just come over and block your shot. Teams are legitimately scared of Robert Williams blocking their shot. We saw it in the Philadelphia series. They couldn't handle Robert Williams coming over and blocking shots, right? So you could not score in that area because of how impactful Robert Williams has been from a defensive perspective. You also go back to that season two years ago. There were two players in the entire NBA that averaged at least 10 points, at least two assists, and at least two blocks. Obviously, Robert Williams is one of them, or else I wouldn't bring up this statistic. The other one was Anthony Davis. So that just sort of shows you how impactful Robert Williams can be. And we're comparing him with Anthony Davis, who it's basically him and Draymond Green are the best playoff defenders right now. And I'm not saying that Rob's in that conversation, but it just sort of tells you how impactful Robert Williams has been for this team over the past couple of years with numbers like that. Also, those 2.2 blocks per game that he averaged two years ago, fourth in the NBA. 
3.9 offensive rebounds per game. That was fourth in the NBA. He also averaged 2.7 second chance points per game. That was fifth in the NBA, right in front of Sabonis and right behind Jokic. Pretty good company, right? So the one big thing with Rob and the reason he's not higher on this list has been the health. He himself wasn't himself really until the Warriors series. You go through that playoff run for the Celtics. He played two games against the Nets. I still don't know why they brought him back. It made no sense. Just continue to let him recover. You were up to nothing. There was no reason to bring him back in that series. He played just three games against Milwaukee because of the knee issue. And then against Miami, wasn't himself still. He only played in six games in that series, and he wasn't nearly as effective as when it actually looked like he was getting close to being healthy again against Golden State. And even then, when he had that huge impact, he wasn't himself yet. So if you have a healthy Rob, that whole playoff run, do you make your do you make things sort of easier on yourself and say beat Milwaukee in five or six games and take care of Miami in five or six games and not put so much mileage on yourself for when you get to the NBA Finals? And I'm not using this as an excuse, but remember, Tatum was gassed. Jalen was gassed. All these guys retired by the time you got to the NBA Finals and you just wonder if you have a healthy Robert Williams throughout that Eastern Conference playoff run, what does it mean for your chances in the NBA Finals, right? I'm not making an excuse. I'm just pointing this out because the health for Robert Williams has been a real detriment to this organization. I hope this year he turns the corner, but basically what the organization has said is we don't trust it. That's why you go out and get Kristaps Porzingis. Like, ideally, you don't have to go out and get him because Rob is just such a dependable player. And I know Porzingis is a different type of player in terms of likes to operate in the post, obviously a really good outside shooter unlike Rob, and I hope some of the stuff that we're seeing from Rob in the offseason, the fact that he's finally being able to train rather than rehab in the offseason will help him. But his health has really hurt this organization. As great as he is and as impactful as he is, the health has been a major concern for the Celtics team with Robert Williams. Okay, so we'll bring in now producer extraordinaire Jamie Mc McClellan. Uh, Jamie, before I get to you here, we get a couple of honorable mentions. Big Baby. Or the large infant, as I like to say. Yes. Large infant, that's what I like to call him. <laughs> and remember, remember when he got yelled at by KG and he cried? That was pretty funny. But he had some moments, right? I mean, yeah, 2010-2011, he averaged 11.7 and 5.5 rebounds per game in 29 minutes. Pretty good. 08-09 playoffs, he averaged 15.8 without Garnett. Like, he had a nice run there. Hit that buzzer beater against the Magic in game four. Mm -hmm. And then when you had him and Nate Robinson together, remember Shrek and Donkey, in that 2010 NBA Finals game four, he had 18 and five and Nate's on his back. Like Big Baby had good moments for this team. Tony Batie, I'll just mention him because he was here for six years. Obviously not a great player, but he was on the conference title team. I mean, you give him some credit. PJ Brown's another guy you got to throw out there just because remember the All-Star game. He was in New Orleans, like he lived in New Orleans and they went up to PJ Brown, Paul Pierce and Ray Allen because they were at the All-Star game. They start recruiting PJ Brown. PJ Brown comes back for the stretch run. And he plays sort of a critical role in that Celtics championship team. Game seven against the Cavs, he was huge. He had 10 and six. He had all four of his shots. He had more points in game seven against the Cavs than Perk, Rondo, and Ray Allen. And Garnett only had 13. Wow. So this guy was critical to that team. He actually said it was the biggest shot of his life, one of the jumpers he hit in that one. And by the way, Sullinger's another guy. I liked him at a couple of good years here, 13.3 and 8.1. Then he had 13.3 and 7.6. He had issues in terms of his physique, was never in the greatest shape in the world, but I liked him. I thought he was a pretty good offensive player. Daniel Tice, I will not put him in this category. I cannot stand watching that guy. <laughs> I, the whole thing that aggravated me about Daniel Tice is everybody cried about the whistle he got. Oh, he gets the worst whistle in the NBA. It's like, he's just not very good. 
Remember when they put him out there in the Nets series and he got cooked by Kyrie like a bunch of times? And I get it. It's Kyrie Irving. And then they put him out there and it's like, dude, you can't play this guy in the playoffs. And part of that is Robert Williams was unavailable. But those are sort of my honorable mentions that I'd put in there. So what do you think of the list? You mentioned on the pod before, Bri, but uh, no love for Kelly Olenek? You know what? That's a miss on my part. I should have put him as an honorable mention. I wouldn't put him in my top five, but as an honorable mention. Just for that yeah, Wizards game, game alone. seven. Kelly's got a game. They had the huge. That's a good point. I totally forgot about him. He should be on this list. Kelly Olenek should be on. Is In terms of honorable mention, not in the top five. He doesn't deserve a spot in the top five. But yeah, Olenek had a nice, no. had a huge game seven. I always like Kelly. Oh, I thought maybe, I was hoping yeah, that maybe they'd bring too. him back at the trading deadline. Remember we talked about it on the pod because you thought that Utah yeah, would sure. sort of be in a position where they would try to sell off some pieces, which they did sell off some pieces, but that would have been a nice return to Boston, but obviously it didn't happen. Yeah, that would have been nice. I think... The only thing with your list, Brian, I can't, I can't get behind the Al Jefferson over Perk. Wow. Thing. I just, I can't go. You there. got Perk. You said the NBA passed Al Jefferson, but I passed Al Jefferson. But I was like, I completely forgot about him. And Perk, I'm gonna use my argument for why Perk should be higher. I'm just gonna play back what you said on the podcast, Brian. You knew his role perfectly. It's like the intangibles doesn't show up. On a That's statue. a fair point. I mean, and and Al only Come played on. three seasons here. But my whole thing is, you don't get Garnett without having Al Jefferson. You can't make that trade. If you said, hey, it's going to be actually Perk that is the guy that's getting traded for Kevin Garnett, that doesn't happen. But you get the champion. Yeah, I, look, it's fair. I just, for whatever reason, I okay. can't go there. Okay, would you win a championship? Would you win a championship with Al Jefferson? <laughs> no, no way, Jose, right? No, you definitely would. With Al Jefferson and Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen and Rondo, you're definitely winning a championship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I thought you meant well, Al Jefferson alone, if that team just sticks around without KG, that doesn't win a championship, obviously. No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, like, my whole point about Perk, and I give him a ton of credit, but he was the perfect role player, yeah, right? perfect. Perfect role player for this team. C- certainly helped this organization and all that. And it means a lot that he was the center on a championship team. But I'm just saying, like, the role that he played, a lot of other centers in the NBA could have played that role. And I have him fourth. I have <laughs> Al Jefferson. Al Jefferson, he had a higher high, right? Like, the 16 and 10 for a year when he was... In his embryonic stages as an NBA player? I mean, come on. Maybe it's just personal. I just can't. I just, the emotion. I, I just love Perk. He was so funny. He had a nice edge to him, you know? Yeah. Kelly Olenek's a good call, yeah. too, for the honorable mention. I, I really did. I think I mentioned this on he the— He could shoot, which was great. I think, yeah, he could shoot. You're not kidding. The only thing he had working against him was the T-Rex arms. Like, he has a negative wingspan. T-Rex arms. Tough beard, too. Kind of scraggly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's for sure. But those teams, man, I don't know. And I talked about this with IT, like I, those that two year period with IT. I love that era yeah, of Celtics basketball, fun. where they're just like all scrappy guys. Like, yeah, Evan Turner was in the mix for a little bit. Yeah, Evan Turner was in the mix. Jay Crowder before he kind of went crazy, and he was he just got traded for five second round picks, ended up getting benched in the playoffs. But those type of guys that. That era was a fun team. Like Smart was yeah. just at the beginning of his NBA career. Avery Bradley was getting going. Those teams completely overachieved. And that's sort of when you looked at Brad Stevens, what he did with that team. They were always like in the top no, five in defensive efficiency. And they had Isaiah Thomas on the team. Like they found ways to sort of hide Isaiah defensively. So that was a really fun era of Celtics basketball. Because ordinarily we think, hey, championship or bust, right? But it's like... Okay, this is actually kind of enjoyable, even though you were never winning a championship. No, they were a pleasant surprise, like true underdogs. Heimblum would have would have loved them. Oh, Heimblum would have like, loved fucking it. loved that loved team. Would have hated the 07-08 Celtics team. Would have hated that team. Would have loved this team. Oh yeah, <laughs> Heimblum would have loved it. That would have been his favorite team of all time. He would tra- he would go back in time to be <laughs> running that team. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he loved Brad, too, because of the analytics. They would probably get along. I wonder if they hang out. All right, Jamie. Great stuff, man. So what we're going to do now, I know we haven't gotten to the phone calls, the voicemails lately. So let's do that. The number is 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Hi, Brian. It's Jeremy Oliver calling from New Brunswick, Canada. Again, love the pod and uh, like the uh, favorite player to watch conversation the other, uh, I guess, Monday. Uh, I've got a sneak two in there that were not on your list. Uh, Tim Thomas has to make that list just because he brought them the cup. Had they not won the cup, I would not have included him in the top five favorite players to watch. But that two-year stretch, one year in particular, was just madness. On the ice, a little bit of passion, and not to mention the number of clips that exist of him just chopping somebody down or bringing some sort of energy along with his elite uh, goaltending. So Thomas is on there. And I think the other player I've got to get on there too, a little bit of a unique pick, and it didn't come up in some of the other discussion, is Adam Vinatieri. Uh, just that leg and those clutch kicks over and over and over again. Uh, it was fun to watch. I still go back and watch those replays. So great pod. I uh, love the discussions. And let's get uh, Adam and Tim on there somehow. Thanks. All right. So the Tim Thomas one, that's a good one. We had him honorable mention. I mean, he had an outstanding run. The run to the cup was absolutely amazing. Like if you want to replace him over one of the guys I had on my list, I totally understand why you would do that. And like I said, if we were doing, if I had a Bruin on my list, he would have been number one on the list because Tim Thomas was absolutely fascinating that season. He was unbelievable. And then the other guy you had on the list there was Adam Vinatieri. Um, I get that he brought a ton of big moments to this organization, but there's no way that he was one of my favorite players to watch. I mean, how often was he on the field for like what, 20 seconds during a game? Like he kicked big kicks, but there was no weekend where I'm like, hey, I cannot wait to watch Adam Vinatieri kick. Yeah, I can't wait to watch Rodney Harrison during that era. Or yeah, I can't wait to watch Tom Brady, right? Even Corey Dillon to a lesser extent. But never did I say, hey, I can't wait to watch this guy kick the football. Now, it's great that we had this confidence that Vinatieri was going to hit every kick, but never was I like excited to watch him play. Thomas, that's a totally different conversation. Totally get where you're coming from with that one. Oh, by the way, one other honorable mention that Jamie and I were talking about in terms of the Celtics bigs, Leon Poe, we forgot to mention. That's a guy that certainly deserves some consideration, not in the top five, but definitely honorable mention guy. He had some big games for the Celtics throughout their playoff runs with the Pierce Garnett, those teams. So he definitely deserves some love when it comes to that as well. All right, make sure to get those voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll talk in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. 
Visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia. Call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 